0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. It is going to be, I hope, um, a very interesting and mutually uh, beneficial uh, seminar because uh, there can be few topics more um, hot at the moment uh, than standards in A-level. And uh, I pay huge tribute to Cambridge Assessment Uh, for the way they have presented to us all and to government uh, very hard evidence on this topic as opposed to the views of the popular press, which seems to uh, uh, delight in telling everyone that standards are going down or going up or going sideways or whatever. Um, We uh, are having um, three speakers, three very eminent speakers, uh, very expert, uh, who will talk for about ten minutes each. Um, they are um, going to uh, stay, of course, for our um, hour, almost an hour after they've spoken, um, for uh, discussion. And can I emphasize that it really is meant to be discussion. You don't have to address the speakers for all your questions, although, of course, you will do some of that. But if you want to talk across to somebody else's comment, then please feel free to do that as well. Um, Can I emphasize um, just once again that we are here to talk about A levels? There are lots of other issues uh, to do with examinations, right from the primary school upwards, that I'm sure uh, people have strong views about. Uh, But let's concentrate this afternoon on the topic of A levels. The aim of the seminar is to bring together those who make policy um, with those who are um, uh, the recipients of the policy, uh, those who are researchers in the field of the policy, and those who actually administer the effects of the policy, that is to say, the people in the uh, providing bodies like uh, Cambridge assessment. So it's very much a tripartite Uh, discussion here and we hope um, will uh, be beneficial to those who are involved uh, in policy making when they uh, take part in the discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, Our three uh, speakers um, are going to speak uh, in the order on your programme and first it's my very great pleasure to introduce Tim Oates uh, from Cambridge Assessment which he has been in now (coughs) for almost four years I think, is that right? Uh, Tim uh, and he was brought in to uh, spearhead um, the Research and Development Division, and, as I say, that has been something I think which has been very notably successful in the last uh, a few years. Uh, before that, he was at QCA, uh, where he was also head of research and statistics. Uh, he's a group director. He's produced work which commands national and international respect. Um, we hope also in government it's produced respect. I should uh, perhaps just divert for a minute to say that uh, some of us in this room uh, this morning were um, at a seminar uh, concerned with uh, the whole topic of uh, science. Uh, evidence to government and how government uses uh, scientific evidence and uh, I couldn't help but sit there thinking about how sometimes the best of educational research and advice has been uh, rather studiously ignored by governments of all colours. Let's hope that there is a new era about to dawn Um, and uh, Tim has been an advisor to the UK government on both practical matters and assessment policy. Uh, He started his career at the University of Surrey as a research officer. Uh, He moved to the FE Staff College, gosh, there's a memory, in 1987, uh, where he helped run the work-based learning project. Uh, He then went to uh, London University as uh, the NCVQ Research Fellow, and in 1993, he joined one of the QCA's predecessor bodies, (laughs) which there have been many in the last 15 years, the National Council for Vocational Qualifications as head of their research and development, uh, and then became director of their research, and then moved on to that uh, QCA uh, position. He got a first-class honours degree from the University of Sussex in, the, in philosophy with literature, and an MA in philosophy, so you are a paid-up philosopher. Uh, Tim, we look forward very much to your speech.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I mean, it's entirely legitimate for society to be preeminently concerned with educational standards and qualification standards, of course. Um, But I am going to criticise the nature of the public debate, which we have. And I've written elsewhere about uh, the very low level of sophistication in the public debate in relationship to educational standards and qualification standards. I mean, it's exemplified by the kind of comments such as, you know, there are more A grades at A level this year, so standards must be slipping... Alternatively, there are fewer grade As in A-level this year, so standards must be slipping. Um, in other words, the logic of the public discourse doesn't penetrate the reality of the standards, uh, the mechanisms which drive standards, or the trends which are occurring in the system. Now, there are many, many issues around standards which we could take of course, and I'll just tackle two, and then go on to rediscuss discuss how, perhaps, we should be thinking about standards. Um, let, let's take one of the assumptions in the public discourse. Qualifications in different subjects should be of the same standard or pitched to the same standard. I mean, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? Uh, is it? Why? Why should they? And indeed, when we talk to continental policymakers and continental researchers, um, they look at us with some bemusement as to the notion of ensuring that subjects are notionally of the same standard. I mean, they'll say, but, you know, some subjects are introduced late in the school curriculum. I mean, how will they be somehow achieving the same level of conceptual demand uh, as subjects which people have studied since they first entered school? And so on, and so on. It, it is a, a, a subject worthy of debate rather than assumption. Um, why do we have this assumption? Why is it you know, there? Is it just um, a naive assumption that, that occurs across the press and across the public? actually it's an assumption which is reinforced by some principal mechanisms which have been introduced into arrangements. So performance tables are a key driver of this notion because you you add up uh, what have to be common building blocks to get a point score um, which is then used to judge the performance of the school. And likewise individuals are judged in the same way in terms of the tariff. And actually the tariff for HE entry is very interesting because it it provides a score for qualifications. Currently, in terms of A-levels, um, it allocates a score to an A-level of whatever subject. It could be used more sensitively, uh, with an underpinning rationale, to, to award different points to different subjects. I mean, quite interesting in terms of what the mechanisms allow and the models which are actually driving them, because there are alternative models. So, so that's the first interesting issue. And taps into the kind of unreflected assumptions. Second issue I just want to tackle is is rather more complex and rather different, and that's the tension between widening access uh, to our qualifications and to to educational opportunity, um, and the need for intensive routes into short duration higher education in respective levels. I mean, awarding bodies and and those associated with the evaluation and development of qualifications have 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 had to uh, walk possibly an impossible line between maintaining standards and widening access. And access can be associated with uh, ensuring that the individual items, the questions which make up an examination, are as accessible as possible, uh, to encouraging broader access to the qualification as a whole. But don't let us forget that our higher education is internationally respected and earns this country a great deal of money in terms of foreign students because it is of three years duration and it's high intensity and of high standard. If we want to widen access throughout the system then we have to think about what impact that would have on higher education. So the the tension between widening access and the need for intensive routes is something which has been worked through in various ways and has had an impact, I would argue, on it, on qualification standards. Of course, all that begs the question, what on earth do we mean by standards? Um, and, and we've differentiated three things. Attainment standards, the things that candidates are producing in order to gain a specific mark or grade or to pass a test or an assessment. In other words, the outcomes. So attainment standards expressed as outcomes. That needs to be differentiated from or qualification standards, in other words the level of demand which is contained in the things which candidates are required to do in a test or an assessment, the demands of the assessment. And those two in turn, each different, need to be differentiated from content standards, the scope and balance of skills, knowledge and understanding contained in the tests, the content. Because you can maintain standards but the qualification can become out of date in terms of the growth of the structure, uh, changes in the structure of knowledge Uh, the growth of interdisciplinary knowledge, the requirements of the destination to which the individual is to progress, whether it be employment or education. And in terms of thinking about standards, um, obviously all of the comparability work which is done in the research community has to engage with a a, a multifaceted problem in talking about comparability. And again, it's very important to differentiate the different aspects of comparability work. We can be concerned with standards over time. We can be concerned with standards between boards. The standards uh, between examination specifications, because of course we have many specifications in, in an individual subject such as mathematics, for good reason, not least in terms of meeting the different requirements of different groups in terms of access and an elite route through into intensive HE. The standards between different routes through qualifications, we now have an extraordinary complexity in the shape of individual qualifications in this country. Um, We've seen wholesale modularisation across the system and with unitisation and modularisation people can combine smaller elements of qualifications in different ways and this adds significantly to the challenge of those trying to monitor and maintain standards. So standards between different routes through qualifications. Then we then have standards between qualifications located in comparable places in qualification frameworks. Now that very much is a reflection of what I call the policymakers' obsession for a tidy system—a somewhat neurotic preoccupation with ensuring that you can contain the system on a single page in the form of a diagram. But it's it's led us to to have a a a kind of conceptual approach to qualifications, that we need to slot them into a national framework. And we have qualifications located in particular places within the framework with a view that they should be comparable. Often that's driven by uh, the needs of of mechanisms such as performance tables. And then we have, of course, standards between nations, and that's gaining ground with uh, international surveys like TIMS, PISA, PEARLS, increasingly being used not only by transnational organisations to generate lead tables, but for individual nation-states to understand how their own systems are evolving and how their systems are comparing with those of other nations in order to judge national effectiveness. Now, now the key thing is that, that in terms of the lack of conceptual clarity, um, which, which hinders the ability of the public and of institutions to engage with a... With a, a an appropriately sophisticated understanding of standards in the public domain. The thing that impedes this is a lack of clarity about these matters. And also a lack of clarity in the focus of policy engagement because quite frequently the policy is oriented towards attaining one thing but actually fails to engage with another aspect of standards. Problems then emerge and then that problem in turn becomes the focus of public debate. And the final bit of conceptual clarity which I want to introduce Today, is a distinction between monitoring standards and maintaining standards. There's an assumption that it's a really good idea to maintain standards over time. Now, now just as with trying to um, implement a system in which subjects are at the same uh, uh, level uh, uh, in respect of standards, I think we need to similarly ask a question about standards over time. Why? Why do we have to hold standards static over time when we know that the structure of knowledge changes over time? and the requirements of the labour market change over time. Also, within that, why do we tend to change all qualifications, particularly at the advanced level, at the same time? Surely there is a dynamic of change within subjects which has its own clock. The bell has rung, and those are the kind of uh, key distinctions which I wanted to introduce to the debate chair, so that's fine.
0: Excellent. Thank you. we actually finished a minute before time. Well, it's just ticked over to 33. Um, thank you very much indeed, uh, Tim. Now, hold, hold any thoughts and questions you have for that because we'll move straight on uh, to our next speaker, uh, who is Robert Coe, um, who uh, comes from Durham University. He's going to clarify what he means by standards um, and then present specific data on A-level standards. He is a mathematician, studied maths at Oxford, um, was then a secondary school teacher um, in a variety of secondary schools, including in a comprehensive and... Uh, Academic independent school, two six form colleges, so you, you run the gamut, I would say, of uh, of that. Um, and while he was doing that, he completed an MPhil in mathematical education at Cambridge. Um, in 1995, he went off to study for his uh, PhD at Durham uh, on an ESRC studentship, um, and his doctoral work at, at Durham, that was, I should say, uh, his, his doctoral work was a study of the effects of performance feedback on a group of teachers which is a very interesting topic indeed, and involved experimental survey and case study approaches. In September 1998, he became a senior research associate in the Curriculum Evaluation and Management Centre at Durham. Uh, He worked on research and data analysis, evaluation contracts, training and support for schools, and the development of new projects. In 2000, he became a lecturer in the University School of Education, uh, where he taught mainly research methods at masters and doctoral uh, level at the moment, he's reader in education at Durham and director of secondary projects in the CEM Centre. That centre works with over two thousand five hundred secondary schools. That's pretty well it, isn't it? There are only about three thousand in total, uh, helping them to monitor all aspects of their own performance. It's the largest educational research centre in any UK university and the largest provider of performance indicators to schools and colleges in the world. He established the Evidence-Based Education Network for teachers who are interested in evidence-based practice and has organised a number of seminars and events, including a big conference in 2003 and in 2006 in collaboration with the Cabinet Office. Uh, Robert has substantial experience of evaluation work and consultancy, including contracts for a number of LEAs and schools, BBC Education, the Basic Skills Agency private sector companies the dfes ggc and vector and he is also the author of a tool for calculating effect size gosh that, my math, math, math run at, at that point uh, robert we look forward very much indeed to your presentation okay. thank
2: you that's uh, very interesting to hear all that about myself <laughs> there's a lot of controversy around this kind of issue and i think it's illustrated by comments of that sort it's hard to see how both of those positions can be right. They appear to contradict. And I guess what I'm saying, or part of what I'm saying, is that actually I think they are both right, or could be both right, uh, because it depends what you mean by standards. And uh, if you want to define it one way, then you'd agree with one, and if you define it another way, you might agree with the other. And for heaven's sake, let's stop talking at cross-purposes here, and let's try and decide, or be clear, each of us individually, what we do mean when we talk about this, if we want to talk about it. And then uh, if we want to then have an argument about it or discuss evidence, at least we'll be talking about the same thing. Now, there are lots of different ways that we could conceptualise standards, and I'm not going to say a lot about these, uh, because I haven't got time. But you might mean any one of these different things, uh, and there, I think there's probably about ten different definitions on that slide there, and I'm sure there are plenty of others, and, uh, you know, we could unpick some of those if that's something people are interested in. Um, as I say, I'm not going to. I'm going to tell you, though, or try and tell you what I mean by standards in this context. And what I mean, uh, so I'm, I'm focusing on a particular definition here, a particular conception. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think one of the issues... I mean, Tim asked the question, well, why should different qualifications be the same standard in different, at different times or uh, across different subjects or across different specifications in the same subject? If we're clear about why, then we might be clearer about what we mean by standards and, and how we uh, investigate them. And it seems to me one of the reasons why we need to be concerned about this is because they are treated as equivalent, interchangeable, comparable in some situations. And and the key one for me is when they're used for selection, selection by universities in the case of A-levels. And um, why do universities use them that way? Well, presumably they are interpreting those grades as an indication of what those candidate students are likely to be able to achieve when they start at university, if they're, if they're given a place. So that then leads us to a definition of standards in terms of the comparability is then defined in terms of what they, what they tell you about that person's likely future performance. So in other words, an A grade in one subject should tell you something similar as an A grade in another subject or in one year should tell you something similar in terms of uh, the general kinds of skills and knowledge and understanding or whatever it is you want uh, from the the point of view of that person who's doing the selecting or the interpretation of the grade in that way. So I'm not saying that this is the only definition of standards, uh, but I think it's an important one and it certainly gives a definition It does follow from that, that if different people want to uh, emphasize or value different kinds of future performance, then they may have very different definitions of what standards are. And it's quite possible for one to say, the standard of this is higher than that, and for someone else to say it the other way around. And hence the kind of contradiction that uh, we saw before. Um, Things change over time, and the contents of different syllabuses Change And if you value one thing and that's gone out, then you might think the standard's gone down. But if something else has come in and you value that instead, you might think the standard's gone up. So there is no absolute sense in which you can define comparability. Uh, But having said that, the the construct, if you like, in terms of which uh, I think these can be equated and, and compared is a kind of general academic ability, if you like, performance in academic uh, study. Uh, and, of course, that's problematic, and I'm sure you'll want to argue with me about that. So uh, there are three kinds of evidence that I'm... or three uh, kinds of question, if you like, that I'm going to uh, just put up here as examples. One is this analysis that we've been doing every year now for a number of years uh, with data from... The monitoring systems that um, we operate in Durham. And the, the reason we can do that and talk about standards over time is because large groups of students do a general ability test uh, every year and the test stays the same. And therefore, we can compare the performance of, on A-levels with their performance on this test, which is the same test every year. There was a discontinuity in 2002, uh, slight change to the test. I've tried to equate across the two, but you can see it doesn't look as though that accounts for most of the change. Um, and this is an analysis that, therefore, we can run every year and look at that. And every year when I do it, or sometimes every couple of years, I wonder if the thing will have changed. And it doesn't look so. it has on the latest iteration there. Uh, essentially, in terms of the level of general ability that equates to or that's indicated by a a particular grade Um, it looks to me as though A level has gone down by about a tenth of a grade every year for uh, probably 20 years and in some subjects more than that Okay, the second one then is the question about the standards across different subjects. So these are A-level subjects now and uh, we did an analysis here where we looked at a lot of different methods statistical methods of comparing the grades that often the same candidates get in different subjects or candidates who are equivalent in terms of some other measure get in different subjects and looking at whether the choice of method, for example, makes a difference, and you can see there's five different lines there, uh, plus the big one is the average, and it does make a bit of difference, but in pretty much every case, the the differences across subjects are substantially bigger than the differences across methods, and the differences across subjects are... Um, of the order of a couple of grades there from from one end to the other. Again, it depends a bit which method. And the third one is really just a, um, this is not really a a proper analysis. This is just a a quick look at one data set. Again, this comes from Alice. And uh, Alice collects not just the uh, A-level grades, but it also collects the exact specification that the candidates did so the analysis here is looking at the, di- the relative difficulty in grade units of different specifications within the same subjects. And sometimes those are within one awarding body, sometimes they're across awarding bodies. And um, uh, again, it looks there as though there are, in most cases, there's a half a grade difference. In some cases, it's close to a grade and that, I think, is quite interesting and probably worth looking at properly um, because that certainly is an assumption I think many people make that if you've done English or maths or biology with, with one awarding body or one specification, that that really does mean the same thing. People treat those as equivalent. And therefore, I think we do have um, some kind of responsibility to either ensure that they are equivalent or at least to... Um, be honest about it if they're not. So in relation to the evidence, uh, what do we need here? Well, the first thing, I said this at the beginning, that we're often talking at cross purposes and uh, we need to stop doing that and be clear about what we mean. Secondly, the evidence that I've presented here is largely or entirely statistical evidence and the tradition, I think, in, in England has generally been to, to emphasise more judgment evidence, and I think uh, we need to perhaps swing a little bit more towards statistical, but I'm not sure that we want to go the whole way. I think we, we still need to keep the judgment in there. Uh, thirdly, the standards over time, you, you just can't do that unless you do have a fixed test, uh, whereas the standards across subjects or rewarding bodies Uh, you can do easily with data that's widely available. Finally then, implications. So uh, it's clear, I think, that in in the terms I've defined it, A-levels have got easier, and thank goodness they have, because if they hadn't done, they would not be a suitable qualification for the majority of people who take them today. Uh, I wonder if perhaps they've got easy enough now, and perhaps we need to think about the mechanisms there. Uh, same thing about the range of difficulties. It's entirely appropriate, it seems to me, to have uh, qualifications that differ in their difficulty. And how else would you do it, in fact? Uh, educationally, that seems the right thing to do. But that clearly generates some problems when people assume that they're all the same. So that seems to me the problem there, not the fact that they're different, but the assumption that they're not. Uh, Thirdly, we can really only talk about this with respect to a particular use. And that, one of the implications of that is that this can't be the responsibility of awarding bodies because I don't think it's up to them to say how qualifications are going to be used. It may be it's the responsibility of Ofqual, or, but it may actually be it's the responsibility of users. Maybe a group like UCAS or somebody like that should actually be responsible for this kind of uh, equating scaling And these methods exist and they're used in many other countries and they seem to me relatively unproblematic as far as anything ever is and we should certainly be looking at those. And and finally, this this question about across specifications and across warding bodies, I think that's one that we probably do need to look at.
0: Um, i let you run a little bit over time because your slides were all uh, so carefully prepared. Uh, So our third speaker is Professor Joanne Baird Um, who joined the University of Bristol's Graduate School of Education in 2007, where she teaches educational assessment and management in education courses, uh, as well as teaching courses on research design and statistical analyses. Her own research (coughs) is focused on issues of theory, policy and practice in educational assessment, She's currently director of the five-year QCDA-funded 14-19 to Centre Research Study, which evaluates the impact of educational policy on 52 schools and colleges in England. Much of her research has investigated aspects of setting and evaluating educational assessment standards. In 2007, she co-edited the book Techniques for Comparing Examination Standards, which was commissioned by the QCA. She's a former head of research for the Assessment and Qualifications Alliance, the largest awarding body in the country. Uh, She was responsible for managing the research programme and the standard setting process for AQA's exams. She also worked as a lecturer at the Institute of Education in London. She's taught for the Open University, and she's taught A-levels herself. Um, Doesn't say what subject. Psychology, <laughs> right, oh, one of the controversial ones on, uh, on standards. Um, she's uh, currently a member of the DCSF's uh, 14 to 19 Expert Advisory Group. She's been an independent reviewer for the National Assessment Agency's Key Stage Test Standard Setting and is a lead editor for the journal Assessment in Education. In 2008, she became a fellow of the Association of Educational Assessment in Europe and she's a member of the UK's Assessment Reform Group. She's advised policymakers on a range of assessment developments, including diplomas, single-level tests, A-levels and GCSEs. So somebody who's had a lot of influence on policy. Joanne, we look forward to your talk very much.
3: Thank you. Um, Well, as the other speakers have said, there are a number of approaches to defining educational standards and each of them imply different methodologies for researching them. What I would say about this is all of them are imperfect measures of what we want to know which isn't really surprising. This is true in science generally, and I'm sure the discussion you had this morning at the seminar um, uh, went into that territory. I mean, we know things like medical diagnosis isn't perfect. We've had to accept that over the past few decades. And even when physicians have assessments, tests, to back up their diagnosis, we still know that you get an imperfect diagnosis. This is uncomfortable, but we've come to understand and, and believe it's not a perfect process so what I want to say is really that as I describe some of the flaws and the time that I've got available I'm doing this to illustrate the problems and interpreting the evidence that we've got and in no way am I suggesting that we can't reach a conclusion in fact I think we have to do things about some of the evidence that we see but let's at least know what the problems are in interpreting this evidence and let's not take it at face value Let's know what the limits of the evidence is as we do so. So the other speakers have talked about um, a variety of definitions, and I'm not going to go through these, you'll be glad to know. But what I would like to just uh, do a loose categorisation of is some of the approaches that we've seen, and and Rob has talked to um, some of these, some of the approaches are really statistically-based approaches to defining um, standards, and the main problem with these, there are lots of uh, detailed problems that we could go into, lots of technical issues, there's a whole variety of uh, ways in which we could argue against these definitions. But the main problem it strikes me is that they're not looking at what Tim called attainment standards. So they don't look at what it is that students actually have to do. So we don't know, for example, over time, whether students are, um, att- are actually producing better performances or worse if we're only using a statistical definition. In fact, there have been lots of studies using statistics. Some of them are in the the grey literature, we could say, especially between exam boards. Lots uh, Lots of the comparability studies between exam boards have used statistical methods, so some of that work is available. And, of course, Rob has contributed a lot in that area too. The other set of approaches are Um, what I'm calling judgmental, they're uh, approaches in which somebody looks at the performance of candidates or the syllabuses, or the question papers or all of the above and comes to a conclusion about whether the standards are correct, equivalent and so on. Now this approach has got a lot of appeal because surely, and I've heard this said recently as well, surely any teacher can look at a candidate and identify at 50 yards whether they're a grade C candidate or not. You know, this is the sort of logic behind it, let alone an experienced examiner who presumably we would very much trust to be able to do this. So this is a sort of assumption underlying um, a criterion-referenced approach um, where you, you can spell out what it is that candidates have to know and be able to do and experienced people can come along and look at students' work in relation to other sources of evidence like um, the standard of work produced last year by students at that grade, the question papers are available for each of the years so that you can um, compare them and so on. So standard referencing is quite like this, a little bit looser. You don't expect students to produce exactly the same thing year on year, but on balance, be of, the, of a similar standard. Many of the, the studies um, that you see in the literature actually use, uh, depend upon these uh, approaches using judgments. In fact, you see um, think tank publications where... Um, Experts have been drawn in to have a look at whether they believe that the question papers are equivalent standard year on year. Well, I'm actually going to use, talk about data from what I would say is quite an extreme case, where we might expect to, the evidence to be most dependable, which is where we, have, we choose our experts who are <coughs> senior examiners, who are very, very knowledgeable about the subject, who know well the sorts of things that candidates at that level can produce and who are very familiar with the question papers and so on. So I'm going to have a look at, in a few uh, studies, how dependable that evidence is, even produced um, from that sort of dependable source. Now, we know um, from our own examinations from work that Mike Cresswell did back in the 90s, we know that if you set standards primarily relying upon qualitative judgments that you actually get quite an erratic pattern of results year on year. Um, The results will go up and down, I mean statistical uh, fluctuations in the results. So Mike Cresswell looked at that and also looked at um, possible explanations for it. Now we're not alone in this regard. In 2004, um, the New Zealand Qualifications Authority also changed to a standard reference system in which they set standards highly reliant on qualitative judgments, and actually had no statistics at all as part of the process. Um, And what they found was that it was quite erratic. The results were half the pass rate to the previous year. Now, given that these were scholarship examinations for entrance to higher education, that was really quite a systemic problem. Um, But as well as that, as well as halving the pass rate and... um, it could have gone up, incidentally. It's not always the case that the standards fall when this happens. As well as that, there were very strange patterns across subjects. They were very different to previous years, and um, the pass rates soared in Maori and Chinese, went up to three-quarters of the candidates. But nobody at all passed PE, which is quite interesting. And they got three gold medals and two silvers at the Olympics that year. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly standards were declining. So they ended up with a, a public inquiry into this and um, I, I don't really want to go into that now, what they found. But really what Mike Cresswell's work suggests is that whilst um, senior examiners can judge the direction of changes in difficulty of a task that students have presented, they know whether it's an easier or a more difficult task than last year. What they're not good at at all is judging, judging the magnitude of that effect So they will over and under compensate for changes in difficulty. Actually, they'll under compensate for changes in difficulty. Now, here's an example of... and This is taken from a live A-level examination a few years ago. And here's some data just looking at whether experienced examiners can judge what proportion of students will get the question right. So at the bottom here, we've actually just got question number, and it's been... Um, sorted in terms of uh, ease or difficulty for the students. The red line shows the proportion of students who got that, the multiple choice questions, the proportion of students who got the question right. Now the other lines represent um, very, very experienced examiners, some of whom told me they have been doing this job since before I was born, <laughs> annually. Um, This is their estimate of how difficult, how what proportion of students would get the questions right. So there's two things to note here. One is there's quite um, significant disparities between the examiners. They don't rank order the questions um, in the same way in terms of difficulty, and neither is there an agreement with the actual difficulty for the students. And this is. This is not an uncommon finding, this is an illustration, but it's something that's um, in the literature um, repeatedly. So, well, maybe that's asking a bit too much of examiners, and it's not actually what they have to do um, when they're setting standards. What the, the normal process for this is that examiners are presented with a small range of students' work, And we asked them to tell us where the cut scores is, where the dividing line is between um, the grades. So in this study, uh, we took the marks of students' booklets and uh, presented them in random order and asked examiners to rank order them and to tell us where uh, they thought the dividing line was between various grades. So we did this in two subjects, GCSE English and A-level physics, and you can see there were two grades in each as well. So why do we take the marks off? Why were we be that unfair to them? Well, we already know the marks. <laughs> we, we have that through the marking process, so in this research we were actually interested in, in what value is added by this qualitative judgement process. So here, we, this graph shows the correlation between the senior examiner's rank order of students' work and, yes, and the actual marks so obviously the correlations can go from minus one where they rank order them in completely the opposite direction to uh, plus one where they have perfect agreement with the um, marks a zero correlation means there's no correspondence whatsoever now what you can see here is that actually some of them were slightly negative although not significantly so and basically, the ones that I've ringed, which I think is about three or, three or four examiners, um, they had a significant association, statistically significant association, between their rank ordering and the marks. So the rest weren't even statistically significant. And I've, I'm completely honest, due to, be mul- due to multiple testing, I probably shouldn't be saying that they're significant either. So... When they're asked to look at just a small range of marks, we get um, very different rank ordering from these examiners than you would expect. So it looks like they're not able to do that. Well, OK. But could they actually put the exam booklets into the correct grade classifications then? Surely we'd be able to do that. Well, this is actually from the same study, and you can see the chance level of um, classification there and in three out of four of those uh, bars it's not statistically significantly different from chance level actually grade C is but I'm not sure I would read too much into that given everything else we've we've just looked at so cantered through some of that to summarise what I've just been saying um, professional judgement alone can lead to erratic examination standards and this is caused by examiners not being able to accurately estimate changes in demand of the question papers neither are examiners good at estimating the proportion of candidates who get a question right and they can't rank order students' work or classify them into grades very dependably either so this is why our standard setting systems you'll be glad to know actually take into account statistical information as well as the qualitative judgments. there can be a variety of um, sources of information there as well and they're obviously sometimes contradictory and we have an accountable officer who has to uh, reach a conclusion about these things so I could go on and talk about a whole range of other literature here are just a a few of the findings Um, even teachers themselves aren't good at um, estimating how difficult the questions will be for their own students Students and, themselves and maths students who just sat the exam and maths experts couldn't estimate the difficulty of a test. Um, we know that the consistency of students' work affects these judgments as well. Whether students have a consistent or a, um, unbalanced performance across their work, and we also know that um, examiners are more exacting when they look at a question paper individually as opposed to what a student has to do for the subject overall. So there are all sorts of effects that we know something about. However, I'm not advocating, having said that this is terribly problematical, I'm not advocating ignoring professional judgement altogether. Far from it. These people, I have a lot of respect for them. They know a lot about the curriculum and how students... um, learn in these subjects and engage with the materials. So I do have a great deal of respect for their professional knowledge and understanding. What I think is it's actually quite a tough job that we're asking them to do, um, either in standard setting or in these studies where we look to try and discern from all of the um, information that we're giving them whether there is actually a change in standards. It's actually very, very difficult because there's lots of information included in that. In a question paper, for example, there are syllabus changes and so on. So there's a whole range of things that we're actually asking them to form a balanced judgment about. However, what I don't want to do either is just swallow whole somebody's opinion once they have looked at these things. I'd like to know what the professional judgment is, but equally I'd like to have other sources of information as part of these um, evaluations if, um, if examiners can't judge very well the standard, changes in standard from one year to the next I'm pretty confident actually that those more detached from the exam system will probably be worst at that um, and I'm also fairly confident that if we're asking them to judge over a longer time period that we're going to get a poorer quality judgement less accurate So I think the emphasis on standards over time is a sideshow that actually detracts from what we we should be looking at and which is towards the future. And that we don't really focus enough on whether students are learning the right things, whether the standards that we actually have got now are right for our country's future. And we ought to be investing resources to check, um, to look at methodologies even for investigating that and collecting views of a range of stakeholders about what the standards should be. In fact, in recent research um, that I conducted in collaboration with AQA, students and teachers told us that A-level standards were quite difficult, they were still very difficult and demanding, but that they were the wrong ones that were actually asking students to learn the wrong things in the wrong ways that they didn't get credit for learning about the subject generally, that they got credit for learning what the examiners were looking for. And it's that sort of thing that I think we really need to focus more attention on.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Well, three very interesting presentations. And I'm sure that uh, we've all been wanting to press lots and lots more questions on lots of things. I wish we had an hour each to, to... to take us through this. I couldn't help uh, thinking as you, uh, the three of you were talking, I don't know whether anybody like me looked at the item in yesterday's Times about the Times crossword over the last... Did anybody else see it? Uh, you, you, you obviously did. Well, very interesting. They, they found this, this man who's an absolute genius. He can do the Times crossword now, today's Times crossword, faster than anybody else. It takes him 3.5 minutes or something uh, uh, to do it. And, you know, he does this consistently over time. And they asked him to do um, a 1980s crossword, a 1960s crossword, and a 1940s crossword. And his time got slower as he went to the 1980s one and the 1960s one. The 1940s one he couldn't do at all. And... uh, and, and what interested me was that the uh, the um, editor the crossword editor of The Times um, congratulated himself and said we're obviously being much cleverer now on packing information into the clues so that people can do it quicker yeah. and I thought that there's an interesting <laughs> because the clues I e., were harder in my layman's terms in 1940 when they didn't get you know internal hidden heads as to what the answer was, this guy couldn't do it. <laughs> anyway, that is a, that's a totally irrelevant thought, or I hope not irrelevant, it, it seemed to me very relevant to, to the kind of issues that you're trying to unpack, the, uh, uh, the three of you. Okay, I've had, had my little minute. Um, who'd like to kick off with, with a question? Don't be shy, not in this company. Rafe. Uh, Will you say who you are and, w- and what you are?
4: Greg Lucas from the House of Lords. A couple of questions. Tim, you were talking about setting standards in relation to the purpose of these apps. Yes. Does the AGSA actually provide enough data of a good enough quality for you to, to use to determine the quality available for those
1: purposes? Well, that's, that's a really important question how, how one would feed in. Um, as it were, signals from higher education, signals from the labor market into qualifications in order to make sure that the content is right and the standards are pitched right. Um, I'm going to be slightly oblique in my answer. I I think there were better arrangements in the past. There were closer relationships between awarding bodies, examining bodies, and higher education, and therefore a, a more rich dialogue between the two in terms of both the purpose of the qualifications and the content and the standards. Um, The the structures which uh, are now in place to regulate qualification mean mean that that relationship is much weaker. And the relations between awarding bodies and higher education are mediated now by much stronger relationships between both of those and the state. The messages go up and back down again in both cases, and therefore the the strong relationship that used to exist no longer obtains. And I think what we've got to explore are uh, 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 various means, hopefully not over bureaucratic institutional arrangements, but various means by which we can get those signals coming much more strongly from the labour market and from higher education back into organisations which are responsible for designing and managing qualifications.
0: Yes, by the window, that. Uh. May I urge
5: that this be taken seriously? There are learned societies. I'm merely an end user at Tony Garden University of Birmingham, a mathematician. Um, there are learned societies who are so cheesed off with what's happened, the separation of awarding bodies from end user judgments, that they are talking seriously about setting up higher education admission tests on a broad scale. Uh, there are some of them already in existence. This would be unfortunate, I think, if it's avoided. But there really is no feedback whatsoever as far as one can tell, and a lot of what I've heard today as an end user makes no sense at all, I'm lost. Because what is happening with the people we are receiving, nobody comes and asks, a lot of us look and try and keep longitudinal data, and I'm afraid, These are sweet thoughts that the emphasis on standards over time is not useful, that it should be, are they learning the right things and so on. But in core disciplines, the right things don't change very quickly. They do not change over a lifetime. The mathematics kids need at 18 is now pretty well what it was 20 years ago. And so you can do standards over time. It is useful. In some subjects, that might not be true. I can't speak for film studies. Um, So I would urge you not to move too quickly to the relativistic sort of scenario.
0: Robert, you're a mathematician. Do you want us to respond to that? Uh,
2: Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think think we've been deceived by some sort of superficial aspects of of assessments and curriculum into thinking that there's more change than there perhaps really is and that they're more different than they really are and when you actually look at, uh, at data, I mean, one of the striking things about, for example, my analysis available, is one of the things people say is, well, you can't compare you know, French and physics or something. How can you say one's harder than another? They're just so different. They're incomparable. Actually, um, there, there, there's a single construct very strongly underlying all of these exams. And, and over time as well, it doesn't change.
5: The FQA used to do subject pairs comparisons every year, which were fairly robust with people who do maths and this, maths and that. And you can get data which is not not as rubbish as
6: people
0: would say. You can. Are, are you on the same topic, or do you want to start a new
1: one?
6: It, it's a similar topic. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor Pam Sammons from the University of Oxford. Um, but I would want to call into question perhaps some of the assumptions. I thought Tim Oates has... Uh, opening was very, very helpful to try and get us into a measured way of discussing and recognising the complexity in questions uh, about standards. Um, I think Joanne raised um, important uh, awareness of some of the difficulties about professional judgment, and if we look back into the school age and um, teacher assessment, which is advocated by many, uh, may be unfair to certain groups. We can show at least that it is different often than test performance. And uh, some recent research I've been doing at age 14, given the abolition of the key stage three assessment, shows that children from low income or from high income families tend to be overrated by teachers. Uh, once you control for their actual test performance. Girls tend to be overrated. Children uh, who've got a record in the past um, of behavioural problems tend to be underrated. So there are grave concerns about teacher assessment, which is why we need, uh, I don't want to get rid of it, but I think we do also need the, the test results. But I would question um, Robert's research, actually, and in terms, I think you were taking as a gold standard, the tests you have of developed abilities which you use, therefore, to make subject comparisons, I think there still is an intrinsic difference uh, because when you make the comparisons, you're saying the the young person who chooses maths but does history, French, English, art, do they perform differently? But the young person who chooses that compared to the young person who chooses maths, physics, chemistry, and who's perhaps intending to study physics at university is going to put different levels of motivation, engagement, and have different kinds of interests. Um, uh, and that will affect their performance. We're also ignoring the whole question of uh, the, the impact of teaching, of the greater emphasis on young people's achievement compared to when all of us were at school, uh, when only a small proportion of young people were destined to go into higher education and far fewer women uh, than men in my day. Um, so I think we need to recognise that. We need to look at changes in performance in international standards and in inspection evidence that also we can marry up with any evidence we have of changes in standards in achievement. And I here draw attention to the TIMS results, uh, which showed significant improvement in maths and science, but especially maths at grade four, which is at primary level, in 2003. But interestingly, in 2007, the most improved country uh, uh, results were, were our own, We now have performance according to the TIMS measures in maths and science that exceeds other European countries um, and is on a par with a very small number of high-performing countries, mostly from the Far East. So those young people, interestingly, are the young people who are coming through to do A-levels at the moment. So we need to recognise external influences of teaching, of motivation, young people's expectations that they've got to go to higher education if they're to get a job... These, especially for women, it's changed enormously from my day when young women tended not to stay on in higher education. They certainly didn't do maths and physics. I dropped out. My daughters, interestingly, haven't. Um, so I think we need to recognise that. And I do think, just making an assumption, that the test of ability, which isn't part of the curriculum... And here I think, Baroness, your point is very relevant, really, um, crossword. We don't know if the 1940s people could have done the crossword nowadays, it, because it's partly learned and taught. We all do. I get better when I, if I do the crossword every day, I get a lot better if I don't do it for a couple of months. I'm a lot worse, so it's a practice effect. This is what young people are doing in schools, and they're getting much more sophisticated at taking exams because they're high stakes, so they practice a lot more. They know they know it much more about what they need to do. To achieve high levels of performance. So this makes this whole area very very complicated and I don't think we can just assume, even though I'm in a higher education institution, that exams are all about what you need to perform at a high level of maths in university. We have gone for a widening access, for a broadening participation, for encouraging more young people to take things like maths and science. So that all has an, uh, that is at, at attention as Tim mentioned um, broadening participation with having those elite levels of performance and just one last point um, is if we look at what predicts your results at Oxford better it isn't your A level results at all, it's your GCSE results, but we wouldn't on the basis of that say well they don't need to bother with doing the A level studies before they come to university (laughs) (laughs) it's just that there's less differentiation in their A level results, so actually if you want to know who's going to get a first or not at Oxford, it's their GCSE results that tend to be a better predictor
0: Thank you. I think we'll bank some. Um, who'd like to come? Yes, Stuart.
4: Stuart Sutherland, House of Lords. Um, I want to make three short comments under a general grouping that we probably expect far too much of any single exam. And there's so many different things that we think the exam is doing that, that partly causes the confusion. Uh, first, first point I want to make, just it, it's, a, it's an anecdote about the House of Lords. We were going on one day in the chamber as we do about standards not being as they were in my day and all that sort of thing. We had quite a lot of that present right place. And I decided to offer them a quick and dirty measure uh, so that they could check out whether this was true. And so I suggested to the noble lords and baronesses that um, if, if they could remember which A-levels they took, and we could supply them with a contemporary paper and they could take the exam and see how they got on and uh, that sort of standard of that, and yeah. that wasn't to be, I mean, wicked or naughty, and it wasn't to uh, uh, flush out those who had realized that the syllabus in biology is unrecognizable from 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago. But, but it, it, that leads to my second point, and this comes out of uh, Tim Othell, very careful conceptual distinctions which he drew, which are uh, appropriate for a philosopher, uh, a much neglected philosopher, is R.G. Collingwood, who I think gave us a good clue about the kind of question you should be asking here. If you want to know, this is for paraphrasing, if you want to know what the meaning of a statement is, you should look at the questions to which it would be an appropriate answer. And that means, of course, unless you know what questions the exams are supposed to be answering, and whose questions, then you don't really know. Um, what uh, value to place on the results of the exams. And this takes me to my third point, which is my, my main interaction with exam standards uh, at, at A-levels and so on, uh, was as a university admissions tutor, where I knew far more about it than I did as a vice chancellor. Of course, when you're a vice chancellor, you could ask far more often what your views are on these things. But one of the things we learned on the way was to make our own discrimination. Uh, I too studied philosophy and one of the things we discovered was that actually the best guide we could find to uh, prediction in in ability in philosophy was whether or not the candidate had done a a, a maths uh, A-level or a higher leading subject. This was just a a very good indication of the kinds of skills that the kinds of philosophy we taught uh, would require and you worked that out on the way. That doesn't mean to say that the The, um, maths... A-level uh, is answering the same question for engineers. I've the had engineers at the rate, and they're very keen on the content. And they need to know, not just that the student has certain skills, intellectual skills, but actually they know how to do this kind of mathematics, because in the minute they get into uh, uh construction, uh, they will be doing that kind of mathematics. And, and sorry, it, it's really illustrating uh, the, the importance of asking ourselves, does this exam here to do? That maybe is a challenge for the exam board. Why don't you market yourself to say, well, actually, our exams are absolutely super for predicting university uh, uh, ability in X, Y, and Z. Or our exams, actually, make the best uh, engineers and the best uh, doctors in, in principle. These would be very different questions that would be answered. I don't think anybody would have the to market themselves in that. But on the other hand, would be a little bit The last correlated point in this is that I was speaking to some economists the other day, and they said, actually, the last thing we want is is a level in economics. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, the the, the poor people who take a level in economics thinking this will get them into Cambridge or whatever, forget it. That's not what they're looking for. So, I asked the right question. I don't know how to change the culture so people do
0: that. Thank you very much, Stuart. Who else would like to come in? Yes, sir.
7: I'm um, Paul Black, yeah. Emeritus Prof from King's College. Uh, it struck me, first of all, on the third subject, uh, the second subject, like when I was a physics tutor, we knew that the maths or the chemistry A level a better prediction of their future than the physics A level. But I think that's pure, almost a statistical-technical thing because the range of performance you had allowed for the people you admitted in your subject... Was very tiny, and therefore you were knocking up against the limits of reliability of that measure. Whereas another subject you were allowed to flow, float freely, there a much broader range there, and its reliability limitations had less effect. So I'm not sure that as, uh, an extra subject uh, having better uh, alignment with your result than the one on which you chose never let, uh, proves anything very much. But I'd like point I'd really like to make is that we look at say the Flynn effect which is an effect where the IQ scores were normed re-normed every <laughs> ten years they've had to be normed upwards uh, since 1950 they've only flattened out in the last few years <coughs> and nobody can quite explain that but it has very peculiar consequences a bit like your crossword story that uh, somebody who uh, got the average score in 1950 would now be Uh, special learning difficulties according to that text now, and therefore the average American in 1950 couldn't be expected to understand the rules of baseball now that probably isn't correct but that's what you might infer Uh, on the other hand the science reasoning task of my colleague Mike Scherer has shown that whereas the Flynn effect has gone up or remained stable in the last 10 years on his science reasoning task scores have gone down So, are people brighter or not? And I think what lies behind this is the issue of the concordance of the test with the broader context in which your testee, your candidates, are living. The context of baseball versus IQ type test items in 1950 was quite different, in that case, concordance today. And you cannot draw firm evidence. Uh, just from the isolated test. Similarly, I would think some of Robert Coe's markers of a, a general ability test. I'd say how those markers, even if they are different, changed uh, with the context in which young people who take them are growing up, uh, in, and are they a really good indicator? So we have both the concordance of the text of the test with the content of the context and the subject teaching context is obviously part of that, but also of course the two interact and that makes it even more difficult to handle what's going on because there's a mutual uh, reinforcement. As one changes, the other gets changed, and so on. So how this wanders around in uh, some s- a space, I think it's very hard for us to analyze, uh, which it leads me to say in the green, what's been some have said that looking at uh, performance over time uh, stands over time is an impossible a very difficult job of interpretation required and there's plenty of evidence to illustrate those difficulties
0: Thank you Paul
8: yeah. Yeah. Yes Paul um, I'd like to echo what Paul has just said um, it seems to me that the whole concept of trying to create equivalences of this time is fraught with all the difficulties of the way in which the whole of our country, the whole of the international scene changes over time. But it raises one other thing. One of, the, one of the underlying features is the concept of equivalence. There is an awful lot of what we're about, both politically and educationally, which is sort of focused on how equivalent are people, how equivalently are we measured. And that, I think, has false and unfortunate consequences. The forcing of equivalence has been one of the real problems where we've had to work out whether standards are maintained or not, whether subjects are the same or not, and and also whether or not the whole background of the people who are taking the tests are the same or not. And I I echo all that Pam said. It seems to me that if only we could back off this forcing of equivalence, And the forcing of, therefore, a measurement, set of measurement scales, like point equivalences, for example, like league tables that are based on equivalences, for example, like even, dare I say it, UCAS points equivalences, for example. It's all of that which I think is distorting all that you're talking about and making us actually. Concentrate on the minutiae, which are actually leading us not necessarily to consider the bigger picture.
0: I wonder if our three speakers would like to come back on some of these points before we move on.
1: Um, Well, I'll I'll dive in. I mean, can I respond immediately to Lord Sutherland's point? I mean, I think what you're raising, really, is a in, in in your third point, a strong assertion of fitness for purpose in relation to the qualifications. And, and presumably openness and transparency in a discussion around a particular qualification, and as a result of that discussion, a very clear statement of fitness for purpose, so that um, what what a particular qualification is for is clear to the people teaching it, the people taking it, and the people using it for a particular set of decisions. And I think we can, Tony, exemplify that through mathematics. Um, it was it was a rather brave person nearly 20 years ago who asserted that if we want more mathematicians in society, then we should lower A-level standards because more people would be encouraged to take it and fewer people would be intimidated by it. Obviously, it's still one of the most popular subjects, but even so, it's not as popular in England as it is in Scotland. So, so we could actually indeed sort of increase the overall quantum of mathematics in society by lowering standards of A-level mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would—I would, I, I would assume—it would be disastrous in terms of the requirements of a whole series of key areas of our economy, which are fed by key areas of our higher education system. So, so <laughs> you have to make a decision. Which which direction do you want to pull the qualification in? Now that raises another point. In a, in, a, in a single subject like mathematics, how many subjects at A level do you? How many specifications, rather, in mathematics do you actually need? Because if you've got clearly different purposes for different groups, it's unlikely that a single qualification is going to meet the needs of those groups. Now, that adds to the complexity of the system, which politicians are pretty averse to. Um, It adds to the need for clear guidance to individuals as to which route they need to take. But actually, it allows the qualification system itself to be more responsive to the genuine needs of the system. So I think your plea for fitness for purpose is an extremely critical one and something which, which many aspects of of the administration of the education system, again, particularly league tables, pulls us away from. And I think we need to assert this debate around fitness for purpose, particularly at, in respect of A-levels.
3: Um, can I come back to the point about equivalencies that Ron McClone raised? I think there are some real difficulties for us here. Um, I think it's unreasonable as a country to expect to have an exam system where the end user has to interpret the results of every qualification, which might be a whole variety of them. And I think that's one of the things that forces us into this notion of equivalences, to try and create some sort of scale where people can easily use and exchange the rates of these different qualifications. I'm, I'm attracted to uh, the idea that Rob was talking about, about... Um, perhaps having different recognisably different subject standards but having a way in which these are translated for entry into higher education for example but I do think that um, the modern world is very complicated there are thousands of qualifications available in this country and so for the end users to actually try and interpret them without us doing something for them to support that I think is very difficult I was also, um, if I can uh, just pick up on something that, that Pam raised as well um, in relation to uh, Rob's data where, Pam, you were talking about um, the fact that these tests look at ability, really, measures of a de- developed ability. And I think it is problematical because we do want exam results to actually tell us something about what students have studied and what they've learned, not just their ability, not just their IQ, Having said that, neither do I just want to uh, disregard the data that... I think it's actually very important, the data that Rob has um, shown us. And I don't see it coming from anywhere else, actually, in the country. So I think it is useful to know something about what is the relationship between ability and these exam results. I don't want to interpret that in face value. I'd actually like to know more about the process through which these developed ability scores are translating into exam achievements. And that's the sort of area where I really think we ought to be focusing some effort.
2: Okay, yeah, well, I think that's, that is very helpful, and I think you're right. Um, clearly, trying to... Um, make claims about standards over time is very problematic. And perhaps I've underestimated the difficulties. I don't know. A couple of people seem to have suggested that. Um, it seems to me that there are different audiences for this kind of uh, debate and that what might be seen as acceptable among uh, you know, seminars of academics, that these are very problematic issues and, we, well, we really can't say are a lot less acceptable in public arenas. And I'm not quite sure which we're in here because we seem to have a a mixture of different uh, types of people. Um, You know, how credible is it to, to say to people who use these examinations, who treat them as equivalent, that you can't do that? And if you can't do that, don't we have a responsibility to make that clear and say, this is going beyond what is an acceptable interpretation. You may think that there is a standard uh, that's embodied by a particular grade in an, in an examination um, over a period of time, but we're here to tell you you can't, you know, we, we, should, we shouldn't use the same grade each year. We, you know, we could have A, B, C, D, E one year, and the next year start with F and go down, because they're not comparable, and that would stop people making that mistake. You know, we are not saying to people you can't do this Ofqual is not saying that to people. Awarding bodies are not saying that to people. Nobody's saying that. So we can't have it both ways. We either think they can't be equated or they can be equated, and we should be clear about that. Um, Also, though, I do think that the... um, Yes, there are difficulties, but I think um, when you look at all kinds of evidence, and plenty of evidence that I didn't put forward here about... uh, Uh, other assessments that have been used over a period of time that have stayed the same and so on, um, about other um, various different ages and so on, Uh, when you put all that together, it does seem to me to add up to a reasonably consistent uh, picture here, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of conflicting evidence. Uh, There's a lot of conflicting claims, but what's actually behind those claims in my view, is, is not generally uh, very convincing. I just also need to uh, pick up Pam's point about the uh, developability test, and other people have made, mentioned that as well. Um, yeah, there is an issue about what these examinations are measuring, and clearly they're not measuring the same as our particular test. And I think if the claims about... Um, well, the claims about evidence uh, standards over time do rest quite heavily on that particular test and therefore it is absolutely crucial that people understand what that test measures to what extent it corresponds with grades in A level and so on and in my view the the crucial thing is whether what the overlap is between the construct that you're using uh, as the basis for comparison what I'm saying is future performance in in academic study uh, and the particular test that's being used as the kind of linking mechanism and if there's a reasonable correspondence there, then I think uh, it's probably fit for that purpose. In, re- in relation to the comparisons about, you know, the issues about motivation and teaching quality and so on. So, um, you know, where's the evidence about that? Do we know that, that students are working harder now? I mean, that's claimed every year when the results go up. Students work harder. I know teachers say that about their own students. Students say that about themselves. Parents say it about their their children and so on and if you uh, question that certainly if you do that in the latter part of august then you're in danger of being portrayed as someone who's really raining on the the party of, of results but it seems to me that what about the people who took it last year then we have an obligation to them not to discredit their achievements and say well you know you did pretty well too and actually you work quite hard i seem to remember not that recently when i was at school i worked quite hard and you know plenty of other people did so how, who says kids are working harder now? And where's the evidence to support that?
0: Yes, I've was, I was just, just if I may, um, Richard. Just um, one of the questions I think it was from Stuart that I think you haven't covered any of you in your answers. Is, is, is are the are the A levels now serving too many purposes? Are they are they being expected both to help with widening access and to identify the? The, the potential Oxford First or the or the Brist- or Birmingham First or whatever. Is, is there a quick comment?
1: Well, no, no that lay behind my response in terms of fitness for purpose. I mean, I think the if we if we look at the nature of the change which has gone on in A levels and GCSEs and GCSEs, forgive me for straying into GCSEs as well. But if we look at the nature of the change there, um, the most characteristic change in the system over the last couple of decades have been have been. Have been very large structural changes, so the mm-hmm. switch to modular qualifications mm-hmm. in 2002, the change from uh, six units to four more recently um, in A-level. Um, what, what th- those kind of system changes ha- have been driven by kind of policy aspirations around access. Tony's points around the need to ensure that the uh, particular constituency in HE, the needs of particular courses, are being met by Individual subjects it occupies much less space in the policymakers' minds in comparison to these big aspirational system revisions to achieve widening access sure. yeah. um, and that is bothersome. Mm-hmm. You know the the purpose of the qualifications we need to attend to with precision. What qualification is for what purpose? Feeding what in the system?
0: That's right. But that, I mean, is, is that inevitably going to lead to more and more universities setting the pre-U, or whatever it is, which, uh, you know, and individual subjects, like the medics have already done, setting their own, this is what we want, and not, not your, your generalised widening access A level. Okay.
1: Um,
2: I mean, I, I think if anybody thinks that a single examination or a single uh, kind of Structure of examinations can meet all the needs of all learners, uh, you know, who happen to be the same age. Um, I'm sure nobody in this room thinks that, and I, I don't doubt whether anybody thinks that actually, apart from, you know, back of the envelope planners who have generally devised the curriculum for us. Um, but the the reality is that we need to have wide diversity within a system, and that's only a problem if you have a regulator who says you can't have that, uh, or if you think that these problems about equivalence constrain that. And um, so the tail has wagged the dog a bit here, I
3: think.
0: Well, I'm longing to ask who tells the regulator what to ask, but I think Richard... Sorry,
3: did you...? come back with a point. I mean one of the problems I think though that this raises is how many tests do we need and how many tests do we want? Do we have enough tests in this country already? (laughs) Do we want more tests? So I think that is a problem. And the other issue is that structurally, if we introduce a range of tests tailored to different purposes, effectively what we do is we close down some avenues for students coming through the system. And I think that could also be really problematic. So I think we need to really think through, if we do want to design tests for particular purposes, what are the knock-on effects going to be on um, students and That society? is happening with the baccalaureate and the pre uh, U and... and, the pre-U and
0: Richard, I think you preempted everybody else's hand going up
9: there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Richard Pring, also uh, Emeritus from Oxford. Uh, can I uh, just say that, um, first of all, uh, Robert raised the question of equivalence. And is anybody really amongst the board really seeing this as sort a of problem? Well, some people are. And I thought it was part of the Conservative Party policy now to distinguish between hard and soft subjects and therefore give more points to what they refer to as hard subjects in relationships, to things like leak tables and so on uh, and that hasn't been raised and yet it could be a very significant impact upon uh, schools and uh, the people who are going to do things like physics and maths and so on so is that something which uh, you experts would uh, advocate um, I think the, the, the second one is um, reference has been made to teaching but I'm just wondering but not in the original presentations very much um, and I'm just wondering, I was on the Oxford board before it was finally lost the battle and handed over to Cambridge all those years ago, uh, but one of the things I feel fairly conscious going back, that the, what counted as the standards were not uh, laid out with quite so many detailed specifications, as indeed I believe that they are now, and that seems, would I would have thought, had a profound effect upon the sort of scale of, of, of improvement because the more specific you become in laying out, or more detailed you become in laying out the actual specifications of what you need to get a grade the more then teaching focuses upon meeting those specifications and therefore I would have thought the more likely that would mean in actually improved uh, grades uh, and I think, uh, so I'm I, I just wondering that aspect of teaching, <coughs> teaching to the grade And I thought the evidence was there in the Chief Inspector's reports uh, that one of the reasons why they feel there's been a certain impoverishment of learning is the fact the increasing teaching to these ever more detailed specification of grades. And I think the third point that I would uh, (coughs) really like to raise in that, and I think it goes back to the links between the, uh, say, universities and uh, the grading uh, uh, system, in the Nuffield review that we did a 14 to 19, I think the only bit of research we did, and it wasn't very sophisticated research, um, was that we interviewed 220 um, admissions tutors across 22 universities, and almost to a person uh, they were saying that the young people, even though with very good grades were less well prepared for higher education uh, than they had been. And they put it down once again to that teaching very much to uh, the specifications of the grades. I think that comes out in the Smith Report 2005, Mathematics Counts. So these I think are issues which really do affect the grading system. One very small point, enlightening, do you think now, I believe that Facebook, thousands of A level students joined Facebook campaign to protest an unfair biology examination, an examining body they said it was, what they had to do was not relevant to what they had learned. So the examining body is now beginning to look at that again. How do you see the future of all this when we get student protests on Facebook?
0: Curricular validity challenged by Facebook. I love the headline. <laughs> uh, is there a...
6: Yes, please. I just want to come back um, to, to the point about, you know, what are the purposes of our examination system? Because I think that's a, a fundamental um, question And I would just want to remind us a little bit of the history of um, the GCSE. Before the GCSE in 1986, we had GCE and CSE, and whole swathes of young people were cut off from any participation in higher education, because if you didn't sit GCE, you couldn't couldn't go on and do A-levels. And I think... um, uh, the, the, the large numbers who now go through since 1986 have been a rising trend. And though I certainly spoke against the publication of league tables when they were first introduced, one of the byproducts, and I still you know, think that on the whole the publication is unfair of raw results for schools, but one of the byproducts was that many more students were entered for exams and passed them, and many more students from disadvantaged backgrounds. And I think when we think about A levels and higher education, in the past, when you were only drawing a very small proportion, they were the top of the heap, usually from very advantaged backgrounds, from selective schools. They went on, they did very well in their, their um, university studies in maths or, or whatever. You are now drawing a much broader group into higher education. Many people would argue that we need a, a much many more people to have higher education for the needs of the future economy. So we have to bear in mind this tension. While the minute you start to alter the A-level exam, say we'll have this one that's more vocationally oriented, this one's more for higher education, you will bring back a divided system again. And you will have two tiers. The vocational qualifications are given less weight than the academic qualifications. (coughs) And the young people will be self-selected or they will be channeled by teachers whose assessments tend to downgrade, not intentionally, but tend to downgrade people from disadvantaged backgrounds, they will be channelled into the more vocational route and the more high status qualifications will again be the preserve of the more advantaged students. So there are disadvantages to having different kinds of qualifications for different purposes as opposed to a common qualification that links to a common curriculum which has led to a widening of participation.
4: This may be a challenge to my unorthodox question, but I I accept the answer. No, a comment on it, (laughs) not a challenge. Quite rightly so. I'm trying to provoke (laughs) some thinking about exactly what you think we can get from the A-level system. And you have, uh, whichever exam system you have, you have unintended consequences. But one, one of the most important things about the exam system is... It is a corrective to personal bias. Because actually having an individual in front of you and deciding whether they piece off the knife or whether or not they have a, a, a real intellectual service <coughs> because they've seen the same film as you, I mean, that, that's not the way to select people for advantage. And this, it, it's a corrective. But actually, what my very common sense, very low-level practical solution, it's to ensure that the business of the university education to ensure that there is constant discussion with the admissions tutors because uh, as a head of a university one of the most prized people in the place was the admissions tutor for faculty who could do all the correcting for the biases who understood what was happening in the exam system who we said well maybe actually that A level in maths is, is, is not right for the syllabus you're going to teach whereas that one's much better I mean, that's tough and that's a very important practical decision. That some, and the
0: interaction with the exam tutors. Yes, please. And just
10: coming back on that. So, sorry, Simon Nevis from Cambridge Assessment. Coming back on that um, last point about the role of admissions tutors in, in um, university entrance. I think one of the um, features of what's happened in the last fifteen years is that the number of, of people going into higher education has more or less doubled, and the amount of Um, Effort and administrative resource put into administering the admission system has halved. And as a result, much more weight is having to be borne by A-levels as the the terminal exam system. And it's quite striking that although we've had... I mean, I think it's good that the the conversation and discussion has now got on to the sort of policy... Um, Environment because it started off as a a rather technical discourse. But what's very plain is uh, Mike Baker did an interesting paper looking at when people started mentioning, that the newspapers started in the summer talking about dumbing down and mentioned the whole question of what was happening in so And before 1994, I think, there was virtually no mentions in the paper every year in coverage of exam results of, of this as being problematic. And now, irrespective of the technical explanations we can come up as exam boards, it is clearly the case that there is a large... Um, constituency that has a, a, a problem that there is a, a felt to be an issue with the quality of, of the output and I think that is something that we have to engage in and certainly as, as an exam board and as um, moreover an organisation that has international exam boards we conduct exam, school examinations in 150 countries around the world And I would say it is broadly the case that it is only in the UK that we have this sort of discussion, we have this discourse, we have this problem, and a variety of reasons. But I think one of the the very critical factors is the... Um, the institutional policy framework in which the, the whole system has to operate. Um, and I think there are issues here. I would also say that there is a challenge of how we engage with higher education, how higher education engages with us as a awarding body. Higher education, for example, has, has more or less, I think, entirely dropped matriculation requirements. Cambridge was the last university to get rid of matriculation requirements um, a couple of years ago because of, of concerns about access. Um, there are very few institutional mechanisms for higher education to feed into um, into awarding bodies so that you're reliant on, on individual enthusiasts who've got particular um, issues. And I think there does need to be some sort of um, HE approach to how there can be an institutional engagement with awarding bodies because otherwise you know, we as awarding bodies are potentially um, exposed to sort of stray enthusiasts or people with, with, with particular views. And actually we need to be able to engage with higher education or, or sub-blocks of higher education as groups and then I think one can legitimately produce a much greater diversity of offering, but unless there's that sort of engagement, which we would be as keen, I think, as most of the, the, um, the, the, the people expressing grievances about the system would be, we would be very keen to have that engagement, but there needs to be an, an institutional and policy framework in which it can, can happen and take place.
0: Oh, noted. Yes, thank you, and that's very important yes you were trying
8: to get in Uh, sorry to come back again and I'm sorry Richard you thought that it was a battle with game bitter I thought you gave over with very good grace Um, (laughs) could I just say that it seems to me that notwithstanding what Pam said about the equality that people sought for opportunity to, to progress the issues about therefore thinking that the same qualification and I want to come back to use that word Is actually then appropriate for vast swathes of our uh, students? Then I think is an unintended consequence, possibly, but a false one. It seems to me that the issue very often is about what we mean by the word qualification, because as I go back over 20 and 30 years in this business, the use of the word qualification in relation to uh, GCSE and A level is actually relatively new. We didn't use that because it was a measure of um, progress, if you like. What do we, why do we use the word? Why do we use the word um, qualification? And what does it qualify us for? Leads me back to the question that we need to know. I think what many people have said here: what is fit for purposes? Is what Tim has said in a qualification, not to force, therefore, some qualities some assessments, examinations to serve too many purposes for which they're not fitted.
0: Yes, and, and yet. The, um, going back to the 16-year-old, uh, the, that um, bringing together of GC and CSE into GCSE was actually what fueled the, the increased staying-on rate after 16, the expansion of higher education that happened from the late 80s and all through the 90s and noughts. Is, I mean, that, that no doubt it had beneficial effects. My response to that
8: is that was probably very good for the 1980s. But we shouldn't keep necessarily going back and saying it is good still simply because it was good 20 years ago, because society has completely changed. If it changed. solved a problem, it doesn't it need to be solved the problem, do yes, yes. again. No, I,
0: that is a thought I've often had. Yes, uh, Tim. Can
1: I just... Make an interjection on exactly that point. Um, I, I agree with you, Pam, and I think you know, the, the international verdict on GCSE is it was, uh, compared with many educational innovations internationally, it was highly successful mm. in terms of raising attainment across the board. But actually, the jury's out in terms of transnational comparisons in respect to track systems. Um, one of the key things about track systems is they send quite strong signals back into families and young people about the implications of needing to work hard to get onto particular routes. And if we look at the the economic and uh, economic performance and the social outcomes related to track systems, there are some track systems that do extremely well. Um,
0: Expand track systems, what do you mean by that phrase? For example,
1: the German system, where people have to choose between a vocational and an academic route mm-hmm. at 16. Mm-hmm. The Dutch system, where they choose between a vocational and you academic mean route at, e- at 11. where there are different tracks 11, yes. Um, some Oriental and Asian systems, where people are put onto quite distinctive mm-hmm. tracks within the academic mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. At, at different ages. And I think I think we just can't say that, you know, track is bad, totally inclusive is good. It, it's about the amount of guidance, the type of signals that are coming out of the system, how people pick up those systems and respond to them. Um, But I think, nonetheless, this is a crucial area for policy discussion because it it so conditions both the overall structure and the detail of our qualifications policy.
6: Could I come back on the tracks? Because I have done work with the um, I was involved with an analysis of the German education system as, as part, of a, uh, part of the review of the federal system in, in the light of their very poor PISA performance. Yes. And they commissioned six successful countries, one of which was England, um, to have country reports to look at their education systems in comparison to the German system. And one of the problems with the tracking... Um, is that there was a channeling, ir- irrespective of your attainment, the low SES, the Im- they still call them immigrant, the immigrant students in Germany were much more likely to go into the vocational track. And um, I think there is a purpose, but I think it's at the age. I think one of the benefits of the GCSE was that you made the choice later by yes. having the, the by having the broad balanced curriculum, at particularly a national curriculum, so girls weren't like I did opting out of science. Uh, 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 until at least they got to 16, um, rather than doing it at 14, uh, as was in the past, has had enormous benefits. So it's keeping that system broad and then having yeah. the, yes. the, the, the tracking, but not having it at a young age, not having it at 11 with selective schools, yes. not having it at 14 before young people are, are necessarily very clear about yes. their vocational choices trying to keep it to 16. Now, whether you need, and I think vocational A-levels have got their role to play, and whether for higher education you need an additional source of exam and entrance exams by universities themselves, Mm -hmm. whether you need the A-star grade at A-level, whether you need additional harder papers for certain subjects, so that you're still not stopping broad participation at A-level, but maybe if you need to have highly selective uh, entrance requirements for certain courses in certain and it will be the prestigious universities, you could have additional exams, but you know who will be going in for them. It'll be the kids, the young people, who've been to the more selective schools, the independent schools, because they'll have the teachers who will specialise in those extra physics papers or the extra maths papers um, that they may need to take. So, you, you know, you will have to be aware of that. Yeah. Mm. that we're coming
0: up to the end of the time, but uh, I think, Margaret, you, had to, you were trying to get in earlier, and yours will be absolutely the last question. Well, um at GCSE, I mean, one of the things that worries
9: me a great deal
0: is the degree to which the politicians in particular say what an indictment it is of the whole system, that we've got 50% of kids who are not getting the five A to Cs at GCSE. And, I I mean, going back to the merger of CSE and GCSE, in those days the the A to Cs were to reflect those who did the A level, sorry, the, the O level, GCE, and they were I mean, tw- they, these were the grammar school stream, which was 20%. Exactly. Um, and therefore, we really should only expect 20% of people to get the A to Cs. Although, I mean, you know,
6: one accepts a degree of grade inflation. I mean, Why? what should we only expect?
0: Yeah, I think we must. Yeah, we must do. <laughs> We've done exactly what always happens with the discussion of A level, and, and rightly, that you have to track back to what... No, quite rightly, you have to track back to how we got to where we are. Um, with A-level and, and, and the purposes it serves, which uh, do take us back to the 16-year-olds, although I absolutely promised Bennett that I would not allow people to go back into the, uh, <laughs> into the earlier stages. Um, but now, um, I think, thank you all very much for a very lively discussion. Um, before we wind up, we must say a very big thank you to our three speakers who, uh, quite evidently from the animation of the, uh, of the debate, um, I'm not sure that you've given us any of the answers, but uh, at least we've got some of the questions. Um, I look at, I look at uh, Lord Sutherland <laughs> as I say that. I liked his, uh, his quotation from college. Um, and, uh, and, and you have brought with you a great deal of expertise to what is an unbelievably complex Subject, and I wish the popular press would stop trying to make it all dead simple. So, can we thank them all, colleagues? Very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment.
1: For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.